All right, Psalm 25 of David. To you, Adonai, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, Adonai. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, Adonai, your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, Adonai. Good and upright is Adonai. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of Adonai are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, Adonai, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears Adonai? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of Adonai is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward Adonai, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Disappointment is a bitter pill to swallow. I was disappointed this week. In fact, my whole family was disappointed earlier this week. Um, You may or may not have known that my parents from Alabama were in this week. My sister from Montana was in this week. And uh, my brother already lives here. So, like, we're all here this week. And we were so excited to get to be together. And and one of the nights we're going to have a dinner celebration for my sister. But through a series of unforeseen and unfortunate circumstances of the birthday dinner, that day, these events collided maniacally to thwart our plans to have this beautiful dinner celebration for my sister in which we'd pray over her for the hard year that she's been through and I'll, I'll just, just shed and pour love upon her. And all of a sudden, we are literally, my sister was staying at my house, my parents at my brother's house, so we were about to walk out the door to my parents' house. That's where the dinner was going to be. My sister, Brittany, my kids, uh, 
her kids, my, that's my sister's kids. Like we're all, we have our shoes on. I'm opening the door and then my pocket buzzes. So I look at the text and it's my dad and we're reconsidering tonight's dinner. Well, that's not good. That means it's not made yet. You can't reconsider something you made, right? Okay, we're, we're way behind. And then eventually it was, it was decided that because of some emotional hardships that happened that day, we're just going to cancel the dinner tonight. Well, okay, that was disappointing because you got the kids all hyped up and now it's, it's quite late. It's almost six o'clock. We don't have any dinner plan made. The kids go to bed in an hour and a half and, um, we got a larger household to feed because we got some people staying with you and, um, my sister was really disappointed because she, that means that's one night she doesn't get to hang out with, um, my brother and my parents. And so there's some disappointment in that, right? Um, so then here's the thing. So we're like, wait a minute. Well, let's just make a night of this. Like, let's just, let's just order takeout because it's, it's late and we need some consolation. So we decided to call Luetti's. That's a great treat. And so we call them and, Oh, yeah, your pizza will be ready at 8 o'clock. Two-hour wait. Well, there was another disappointment. We were like, we'll wait an hour, which is kind of the standard Luetti wait, but this was, okay, no, that's not happening. So eventually, we got all, you know, we sorted dinner out. We got something else in the meantime. But disappointment's a real thing. And here's where disappointment happens. Disappointment happens when my expectation for something outweighs my experience in it. So when I have this heavy expectation, this large, I cannot wait, this is going to be great, and then it's like, oh, that was it? That is disappointment. You have plans, you have grand visions of what's going to happen, and then 2020 happens. That's disappointment. We go through disappointment all the time. One of the ways we can make decisions in life is actually weighing expectation and experience. We knew right in a snap, we're not getting Luetis tonight, because a two-hour wait, yes, as great as their pizza is, if you're a fan or not, as great as their pizza is, the experience, a two-hour wait, that expectation outweighs the experience of a two-minute consumption. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but there you weigh that. He's like, that doesn't make sense. It would be disappointing to wait two hours for this. So um, when your expectation outweighs the actual experience, you get disappointment. The Christian, this is the good news of Advent. This is the good news of anticipating Remembering the first coming of Christ, anticipating his second coming, and anticipating what he wants to do in our lives in 2021, the beautiful thing about being a Christian is our expectation is never larger than the experience of what he brings. The experience of Christ, the experience of his coming, the experience of his presence will always outweigh our expectation, especially a two-hour wait. Two hours for the glory of Christ? Any time, any day. The problem is, we've been waiting for two decades or two millennium. Does it still match up? Yes. The Bible says yes. And yes, you can wait 2,000 more years, and that expectation is still puny in comparison to the experience of his actually being with us. 
There's no way to measure, to put a timestamp of how long is too long to wait for eternity, for the infinite being himself, whose essence cannot be replicated in creation, who's one of a kind, who's immutable, unchangeable, who's dwelling in the unapproachable light. You cannot say, oh, there's just too much wait time for that. Impossible. And here's the beautiful thing about what Paul says in the New Testament somewhere. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, this momentary light affliction. You know what he's saying there? This light momentary affliction, that's life. 70 years, 20 years, 15 years, whatever it is. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what we're talking about. You cannot be disappointed when you are waiting on God. In Advent, we wait, and we remember that we wait. And when Christ comes to us and says, do you believe I can do this? We want to yell, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. But that's only step one. Believing God can do this is not the same thing as receiving the fact that we want him to do it in us and through us. I can sort of passively say, yes, Lord, I believe you could bring revival to our nation. That's totally different than living and preparing and waiting and waiting and waiting in such a way that I'm preparing myself to receive the revival. You know why we hesitate? We want to believe God can do things, but we don't want to receive he can do them because we know that if he actually does them, it will radically alter our lifestyle. It will make us uncomfortable. It will force us to make changes. It's so much easier to believe he'll do that somewhere else. But to actually go from believing to receiving that he wants to do something in our midst, it requires something to change. And thus, Advent is a time of waiting, it's a time of expectation, because it's a time of preparing ourselves to receive what he is going to do. So what Psalm 25 is about is it teaches us that waiting well precedes us, waiting well prepares us to receive his will. Waiting well, you can wait, tap your foot, And watch Netflix, that's one way to wait. Or you can wait well, because when in the process of waiting, and we'll talk about what waiting means, but in the process of waiting, I am being prepared not just to believe his will and his power, but to receive his will and his power. The waiting itself is preparation. Hence, we will be preparing ourselves for what Christ wants to do in our community in the upcoming who knows how soon, but we will be preparing ourselves. So here's what Psalm 25 is about. It's about how to wait well. How do you wait well? Notice one more time some of these verses. Verse 3. Indeed, none who wait. The end of verse 5, the very last line of verse 5. For you I wait all the day long. And then verse 21, the last line, for I wait for you. Psalm 25 is a waiting psalm. It's a waiting psalm. 
Okay. So, what, let's take a look at the first uses of this word, wait. And we're going to get some idea of what does it mean to be waiting for God. So, let's read verses 1 through 3 again. It says this. To you, Adonai, I lift up my soul. In other words, my entire being. The, the Hebrew is like my life breath. It's my entire being. That's what soul is in Hebrew. I'm lifting it up to you. I have, I have nothing. I have no other hope. It's in you. So he's lifting it up. And then he says in verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. What does shame mean? It isn't, in this case, the feeling you get when the blood's rushing to your face and you're blushing and you want to go crawl into a corner because you're completely embarrassed and you feel inadequate and exposed before everyone. It's happened once or twice up here for me. I wish the trap door was actually working. Um, that's not the shame we're talking about. And sometimes we, we imagine when Paul in Romans says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, we think that he's saying, I'm not embarrassed by it. That's not what Paul means. When we're talking about shame here, we're talking about disappointment. My God, in you I trust, let me not be disappointed. That's what he means by don't let me be put to shame. In other words, if, if, I'm, if I'm giving everything to you, if I'm going out on a limb trusting you, while I have these evil people, the end of the psalm, he said, consider how many are my foes, while I've got these problems and this stuff pressing around me, if I'm going to go out on a limb and trust in you, and you let me down, you disappoint me, I will be shamed before all of these mockers and scoffers. That, that's the idea behind shame here. Let me not be disappointed. Let me not be shamed. In other words, I'm waiting for you. You must come through for me. Because if you don't, I've got nothing left. Must come through. So, if you're like me, it helps. I just wrote the word disappointed right there by shame. Let me not be disappointed. Let not my enemies exalt over me. So I'm lifting my soul to you. Don't disappoint me, God. Otherwise, I will be trampled over. Indeed, verse 3, none who wait for you shall be disappointed. They shall not be put to shame. We've already shown you, we've already seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, how that's true. The Christian will not be put to shame if we wait on God. So indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame or disappointed. Now watch this. The verse now flips itself. They shall be ashamed, or they will be disappointed, who are wantonly treacherous. What a phrase. When's the last time you ever thought, they're wantonly treacherous? That's so great. Um, the word wantonly means empty. Or I believe the New King James, or a lot of translations, say uh, treacherous without a cause. So there's no cause for the treachery. The treachery is empty. There's nothing anchoring the treachery. Um, wantonly. So I'm like, well, the English Standard used a really unique word there. So I just went to the Hebrew. It means empty, right? So, um, but here's 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 where I think they use the word wanting, wantonly very 
colorfully. Because to be wanton also indicates like you're, you're, you're spending wastefully. You're wasteful in what you have. So they're wantonly treacherous. Or in other words, while the psalmist is waiting on God, therefore I will not be disappointed, these folks are wasting what they've been given. They're wasting their time. They're just spending foolishly and betraying God. The psalmist is trusting. He's waiting. They are treacherous and they're wasteful. They're empty. There's no cause for what they do. See, the difference here is that the one who waits on God is not passively waiting. Not at all. Otherwise, it would be, I'm wantonly waiting. Often we struggle with passages about wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and be given wings like an eagle. What does it mean to wait? We don't like waiting because we're Americans. We don't like waiting. So, waiting here is not this empty, can't believe I'm just... A lot of Christians live like this. Just waiting. That is not biblical waiting. That's wantonness. That's wastefulness. The waiting here is about preparing ourselves for what God is about to do. Waiting well prepares us to receive his will. So, the waiting here... It's, um, it's not a wasted waiting. I think one of the reasons we struggle with waiting in life is because it feels like wasted time. It feels like it's wasted. I was 27 before I got married. Could have felt like I'm wasting my time. In fact, a lot of, God bless Christian intent, but a lot of Christians who are married tend to look at single people and say, when are you going to get your act together? It's your mandate to get married and have kids. Sometimes that's the attitude, though they never say that. That's just the way you feel. There's no place for the single person in the church. You're wasting your life. Um, yeah, so, but wait, look. I was waiting. I was waiting. Was I wasting my time waiting? Was I just saying, I don't want to get married because I want to play video games and eat french fries every night. That's what I want. No, I wasn't. I was going to Bible college and school and getting trained for what I felt, thought God was calling me to be and do. And, and along the way, while I'm waiting on him, Lord, don't disappoint me now. Don't make me 40 and, you know, because I wanted to get married. Some people don't, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to get married. But was my waiting in vain? Was it emptiness? Was it just, I'll just keep picking my nose because there's no one to tell me to stop putting it in the carpet. I know. Sorry, it's when you conflate kids with yourself. It's just weird patterns emerge. (laughs) Um, No, 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 no. That wasn't it at all. I'm actively preparing myself to be the person that God wants me to be to be married. I'm preparing myself to receive when God brings a person into my life. Now, that doesn't mean every day I was literally going, oh, I'm preparing myself to be married. I have a lot of other things you're doing. You're preparing yourself for life. You're preparing yourself to walk and grow up and mature in Christ. But he does not disappoint for those who wait for him. As we wait and grow in him, we're not wasting time at all. God uses every single year where you thought you were disappointed. 
God didn't say, no, I, I didn't fail to come through for you. It's just that I didn't come through yet because I was preparing you. If I gave you everything you prayed for right when you prayed for it, you wouldn't be ready to receive it. And so sometimes the answer to our yearning, where are you, Lord? When are you going to come? When are you going to deliver me from this? When are you going to answer my prayer? When are you going to give me this? Sometimes the answer is, wait well because it will prepare you to receive my will. Wait well so you can receive well. That's what he keeps saying. Your waiting is not in vain. Your waiting is not empty. None, verse 3 says, indeed. This is surely, surely, truly, truly, Jesus would say. None who wait for you will be disappointed. Instead, the disappointed ones are those who are wantonly treacherous. Just wasteful, not a lot of plan. Just, just kind of, well, I'll just do whatever I do until things change. I pray God's given you an example in your life to know that that never brings change. Of course, I would hate that there's someone actually living like that in your life, but perhaps we can learn, as the as, as Solomon in the Proverbs said, I went by the way, the gate. What was it? I went by the fence of the sluggard, and it was broken down. And I learned. Oh. See, Solomon, wise people learn from foolish people. And perhaps we've seen people who don't wait well and are wasting their time just eh, passively going, God must break through and do this for me. I had to learn the hard way that God doesn't break through and do things for people who just sit around saying, it's not my responsibility until he does it. When God calls people, they're usually doing something. The disciples were fishing. Matthew was collecting taxes. When Elijah called Elisha, he was plowing his fields. None of them are sitting there saying, hold on, God, I'm almost done with the season finale. Anyways, waiting well prepares us to receive his will. Okay, so we saw that there in the first three verses. Now, why, why, does, why, why, why do we need to look at a psalm that tells us to wait well? Why do we need that? Because we have an anxious, anxious relationship with time. We are all aware of time, especially Americans. Not so much Ugandans. I mentioned them because I know several people who come back with a wide-eyed report of their concept of time. They said church was at 10 and we didn't start till noon. Because everybody's idea of, oh yeah, 10-ish, come when you're ready. And they finally, they just, that's just their way of life. But we, Americans especially, us in these seats, in, these, in this context, we have an anxious relationship with time. And a lot of this comes, well, first of all, because we're impatient. We want what we want when we want it. And the Christian way is such a challenge to the human way because it tells us Christians always wait. Christians never get the promises given to them when they're promised them. We're promised a crown of glory, but we must, or at least for 2,000 years, much of the church has instead suffered under the ones who think they're wearing the crown of glory. Put all these Christians to death. But they have to, they, they learn. Look, we won't be put to shame. We won't be disappointed. We will follow our Savior to the grave, even if this king kills us, because we know he's promised we will have a crown of glory. And so the martyrs are crowned with glory. We must always be told to wait. And we're so impatient. We want now. We have these passions. We have these desires. We have this like need to prove ourselves. 
to our fathers, psychiatrists might say, or to the God that we think is angry with us, or to the people we're trying to please. There's this great passage in Pilgrim's Progress where you may know the story of, it's a dream in which a, a guy gets saved, he becomes the Christian, and he's making his progress to heaven. It's, a, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And on his journey, he goes to the interpreter's house, who seems, in my reading, it seems to be like a, a little stop with the Holy Spirit. And in the interpreter's house, he's shown uh, two children sitting. One was called Passion, and the other was called Patience. And Passion wanted his reward now. And so a bag was brought to Passion. I imagine like a Santa bag, just full of toys and goods and such, and is placed in front of Passion. And Passion rips the bag open and is gleefully laughing and having fun with all of his goods. And he's pointing scornfully at Patience, saying, I have it all and you don't. But then as Christian is watching this unfold, soon all the goods are spent. The candy's eaten, the toys are broken, and all he's left with is a bag. And he asks interpreter, what does this mean? And interpreter says, look, passion wants everything now, but patience is willing to wait for the greater reward and will suffer waiting for it. And just that, that picture there, though, if you can imagine the way two different children might be, Regarding treats and candy, you can have it all now or you can have twice as much if you just wait. And the different temperaments of children in responding that way. This is us spiritually. And our impatience tends to be where a lot of our sins come from. We're not willing to wait for the promises that God has given us. In C.S. Lewis's um, speech, The Weight of Glory, he actually says that the promises of God are so incredible, we would blush if we actually understood what they were. We're impatient. It's not that we desire too much. It's that we don't know how to wait for what we desire. And so most of our sin is trying to grab what we're desiring ahead of God's bringing it to us. We're impatient. So Psalms like this remind us, hey, you, if you wait, you will not be disappointed. It's also one of the great things about Christian fasting is when Christians do a fast, you have to keep telling your body, no, no, I will not. Actually, the better answer is later, later, because you will eat again, just later. So we must, as we wait well, we must tell soul later when it wants to rush into something. Look, God has promised. He will not disappoint. We wait later, soul, later. Fasting is a great way to teach us the lesson of later. Um, so we have this anxious relationship with waiting. We're impatient. Possibly because we live in a culture that tells us time is money. Now, I may not be in a type of lifestyle that actually has to see time is money. I once heard when I was a kid, if Bill Gates stopped to pick up a $20 bill, he actually lost money because of the time it took him to pick it up. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they said. 
All the kids said that. Can you imagine being so rich you lose money by picking up a $20 bill? Time is money is the idea that you must keep being productive in order to keep making money. If you stop moving forward, stop advancing, you're losing. And okay, maybe our slogan isn't time is money, but our slogan is time is self-improvement. And if our focus is on improving the self, then what often happens is we get frustrated when our little regimes, our diet plans, our exercise programs, or whatever it is for self-improvement that we're on this great track for, when, oh, say the holidays come, or someone gives you this big, fat chocolate cake for your birthday, it frustrates you because you feel like you're losing. I'm not moving forward anymore. We have this strange relationship with time where we feel like if we're not constantly moving forward in our plan or our agenda, then we're somehow loose. Because everybody else is moving forward and I'm stuck with kids. Or I'm stuck at this job. Or I'm on the side of the road with a car that breaks down on me every other month. We must rehabituate ourselves. Create a new relationship with time. Time is not a tyrant marching forward that says, get on board or get left behind. In God's world, time works completely differently. Psalm 25 is an acrostic psalm. Do you guys remember acrostic? We saw one of these already. An acrostic psalm is where every line of the psalm begins with a new letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Now, let's artistically challenging. Imagine writing a psalm where you got to start with A, next line's got to be B, next line's got to be C. It's pretty cool. Of course, I don't know if Hebrew is as hard as having to work with X and Z as it is in America, but that's what an acrostic is, is that there's structure and order to it, and it's in consecutive order. And it's almost as if this psalm is saying, look, while you wait, while you wait, Understand that God's concept of time is different than our concept of time. The acrostic paces life for us. You can't rush from A to Z. You have to go A, B, C, D. But I want to get to Y. E, F, G. Maybe L, H, I. You've got to go as they're given. And in God's kingdom... We are not slaves to time. Even age and death that haunt us, we don't have to say, oh no, I'm marching too close to it. Because we know who holds us in death. We've already looked at Psalm 23, 22, 23 and 24 and seen that our good shepherd leads us out of death. We we don't have to live in the tyranny of time like the world does. The Christian lives in a different time. And Psalm 25 reminds us, hey, pace yourself. Just wait. Z comes eventually. You just got to get verse by verse, day by day, moment by moment, challenge by challenge. So we need to eradicate the idea that time is money. It's not. Time is God's. And when we say time is God's, it doesn't mean, oh, God has a great time management plan. When I say, I gotta use my time well, when I talk about time as mine, it means my plan. But when we say time is God's, we don't mean it's his plan for time. We mean that time is just an object he carries in his pocket like everything else in the universe. 
It's just a thing that he owns and holds. He can bend and tweak and pause and step in and out of. That's time for God. That's a totally different relationship. We need to understand that God's relationship to time is one that we should adopt. Maybe you remember James. He talks about time. He says this to the church in James 4.13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's how we plan, right? New Year resolutions are coming up. How are you going to manage your time? James is saying, well, wait a minute. So verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. In other words, if I've got this grand plan and then it gets frustrated, I get disappointed. Then I get, to, then I get depressed. And then I feel like everybody else is advancing. Look at Instagram, Facebook, and everything they're doing, and I'm sitting here frustrated. It's not a good place to be because everyone walks through that. You just have to be ready for it. So James says, look, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. <laughs> you know, pet talkers, Plant time management planners, you are a snowflake. And you matter. You guys, you matter. But you are one of a kind. Don't waste this one wild and precious life. Yes, please don't waste it. But there's this whole emphasis on because you are the most important thing in the center of this universe. And James is just the total opposite. He's just like, he's preaching to his, probably the Jerusalem church is what people believe. He's preaching to the Jerusalem church and he says, yeah, you are like a little vapor that vanishes in a moment. Oh, thanks, James. I feel even smaller. But his point, you keep listening to his point. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's saying, be open To, yes, make a plan, but be totally open to if the Lord wills so that you aren't disappointed. I, my plans get disappointed. God's plans? Never. Those who wait on him will never be put to shame. So, look, instead say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. My use of time. It's arrogance, he's saying. All such boasting is evil. So James calls the church to patience, to waiting on God, to being willing to say, all right, I may not have planned to go marching through the acrostic, but here we are. He then also, in James 5, 7, tells them to be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how a farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earthly or the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What is he saying? Well, the farmer, yeah, plants a seed, and there's not much to do once you plant it. You've got to wait for it. But the farmer also has to be ready. He has to prepare so that when the harvest comes, he has the labor, he has the space to gather it and to store it. Otherwise, if he waits passively, it all goes to waste. James is saying, so too, God is coming The return of the Lord is coming. He's going to come visit us in this next year and do a work in our midst. Are we preparing as we wait? Or are we just going, cool, I'll keep doing my thing and I'll watch it happen to everyone else. Don't be the wantonly treacherous. All right. So what do we do with this? I think this psalm invites you and I to wait without waste. 
Obviously, this is what we've been talking about. How do we wait well? How do we wait well? How do I wait so I'm not wasting my days? This is how we wait well. I want to read to you Ephesians. You guys know this passage. Ephesians 5, and then we'll look at Psalm 25 again. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, 15, he says, Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What he's not saying is, make sure you go to the the time management conference because the days are evil. He's saying, and I love the New King James translation here, because it's, it's quite literal from the Greek. It's redeem the time. Redeem the time. It's buy back the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time in our lives. So, okay, so Paul continues and he says, so don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you redeem time? We've wasted plenty of time in our lives not walking with God. We've wasted plenty of that. How do we redeem that? Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How many days have you lived unfilled with the Spirit? Redeem the time by being filled with the Spirit. And then, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Isn't that great? Praising, singing praises to the Lord. These are ways to redeem the time. Now, watch what the psalm says. How do we redeem the time? Prayer and praise. This is how we wait well. You wait by praying. You wait by praising. I know, not very climatic because through, through, through 24 psalms we've looked at prayer and praise. But this is the pattern the psalms invite us into. Live, march, one foot prayer, one foot praise, one foot prayer, one foot praise. And as you do so, you will find yourself waiting well. You will not be disappointed. Look at the psalm too. Um, verses 1 through 7 is a prayer. Notice how it's addressed. To you, Adonai, I lift up my soul. Um, verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Verse 5, lead me in your truth. Verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord. Verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth. He's talking to the Lord through verses 1 through 7. He's talking to him. That's prayer. He's talking to him. Then, in verse 8 through 10, it's praise. Good and upright is Adonai. He's talking about him. Good and upright is Adonai. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of Adonai are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That's praise. This is who he is. He's good. He's great. So he's praying. He's praising. Then he goes back to prayer in verse 11. For your name's sake, Adonai, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Back to praise in verse 12. Who is the man who fears Adonai? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide. Verse 14, the friendship of Adonai. Verse 15, my eyes are ever toward Adonai. Because he will pluck my feet from the net. Then right back to prayer. The last verses of the psalm, 16 to the end. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Now he's talking to God. Verse 20, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be disappointed. 
for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. What do you see here? You see a prayer and praise pattern. This is not just a prayer. This is not just a praise. And it's not neatly divided. This is the prayer section, one half. This is the praise section, second half. By the time we're walking in prayer and praise through an acrostic by Psalm 25, it should start to become a habitual response in our lives. That one breath we are praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then the next breath we're praising, you who redeem my life from the pit, you who forgive all my iniquities. Prayer and praise. It becomes the language, the fluid language of the Christian who waits well. And by the way, when you are waiting and praying, praying is proof that you're waiting. Because to pray indicates there is some sort of absence. I am praying to the one who is not here in my midst, yet he is here in my midst because I'm praying to him. But yet there's a prayer that we're asking him to return because he's not here, yet he is here. It's that weird conundrum of absence and presence. Prayer is a language that says, contrary to the rest of the world, we live on the borderland of another place. Everything is not here for us. It is yet to come. And prayer is language that says, I recognize it is yet to come. Okay, so first, prayer and praise. That's how we wait without wasting. Prayer and praise. Marching left and right. Prayer and praise. Second, confession. Let's use the season of waiting. Let's use preparation for what God is going to do by emptying ourselves of junk. This is confession. Confession is admitting where we're wrong and where God is right. It's not dreadful. It's only dreadful if you're proud and cannot see yourself as someone who's made mistakes. But God does not make confession dreadful. God never hovers over and he says, I was waiting for you to admit that. Boom! Now you don't get that raise you were going to get. That's not how confession works. Confession is simply recognizing the goodness of God. It's emptying the filth so that there's room to receive what we believe he's going to bring. Are you making room? Are you preparing? Are you anticipating he's going to do something? Then confess and let's move out from the dead self and move toward the new life in Christ. Confession is the path away from that which hasn't worked. So you see this in this psalm, verse 7. It's thread throughout the psalm. Verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth, or my transgressions. Remember not the sins of my youth. We've done some poor waiting, haven't we? Especially in our youth. You don't have to share about it, but that's where we do the worst of it, often. Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. A long time ago. I'm growing up. I want to grow up. Verse 11, For your name's sake, Adonai, pardon my guilt, for it is great. I found the more that I confess sin, the greater sin looks. When we, when we see sin as something light, not a big deal, just move on. It's just something I carry around. Oh, friends, you're in a bad place. You're in the dark. As first John said, we prayed and confessed earlier, right? John said, look, if you're in the dark, 
You know you're in the dark because you say, oh, that's not that bad. It's because you can't see it. Because you're not in the light of Christ. You are blind. You're walking in the dark and you don't have a clue. That's waiting so poorly. We want to prepare ourselves for what God is going to do. So we pray and praise. We confess our sins. By the way, there's one more. It's in verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive me all my sins. So three times he asks for forgiveness and we do as well. Let me be crystal clear because I think confession sometimes confuses Christians. It definitely confessed me in my youth. It confessed me in my youth. It confused me in my youth. We don't confess to be forgiven. You are forgiven. Christ paid for your sin on the cross. You confess your sin rather to acknowledge that God's way was always right and you don't want to keep walking in your own way. That's why we confess. So the wording is not you're paying back a debt. It's you're admitting. You're admitting he's right and I'm wrong. And we're thanking him for the forgiveness. You always receive forgiveness when you confess. Always. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise. And you don't actually have to wait that long for that. Prayer and praise, confession, third way we can wait well, is direction. If you're waiting, you need a road to go on. You want to make sure the road's going in the right direction. This psalm is laced with prayers for direction. Verse 4, Make me to know your ways, Adonai. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. So, Lord, while I'm waiting, let me know your paths. Teach me. Teach me how to walk. Teach me where to go. Show me. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Go down to verse 12. Um, he, him, God will instruct us in the way that he will choose for us. Verse 13. Uh, well, there's a promise that we'll inherit the land. Um, there you go. So there, there you see three sections where they're praying for direction. So three times he's praying, Lord, forgive me. Ignore my sins. Like, let's just, I want to move a different way. And then what does he pray? He, he, he prays confession, then he prays for direction. If I want to leave this behind, show me where to go. This is how we wait well. This is how we wait without wasting. This is how we redeem time. We spend our days in prayer and praise, confessing our sin, and asking God to give us direction for our lives. If we commit ourselves to this over the next month, we will be ready to receive what God is asking. Do you believe I can do this? Yes, Lord, we, we believe. Help our unbelief. Now help us to receive what you're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to praise. We're going to confess our sins and we're going to ask for direction in our lives. This is how we're going to enlarge our souls to receive the great work of God. Oh, by the way, I said a month. That's just to the new year. It's not like God, remember, God's time's different. It's not like, oh, it's, it's 2021. I guess I should kick COVID out of here and, and, and drop that miracle bomb on those people in Twin Peaks. That's not necessarily how God works. It could be three months. Three months and two days. 
We don't know. But this is what you do. You wait because you will not be disappointed. You pray and praise. You confess your sins. And you ask for direction. And then, and then, God, we will be ready to receive because we've waited well. Let's pray.